0: If you're tired of the superficial and you're craving real conversation about life, relationships, fears, doubts, and the divine in the middle of it, this is the place for you. My name is Anna Dimmel, and I'm a blogger, writer, and former pastor. And it's my passion to build bridges, not walls, through honest, real conversation and connection. And I want that for you. This is the show that will help you do that and give you not only inspiration and connection, but will help you leave the superficial for good and form the real connections you're craving. Your story matters, and I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Hi there, and welcome back to the Behind the Mirror podcast. I have a special episode for you today. For those of you who have tracked with this podcast since the beginning, you would know that this was like our first season. This was my first attempt at even trying to do this whole podcasting thing. And from going from the world of preaching sermons from behind a pulpit to writing books to trying my hand at this this was this was a new venture for me and i have thoroughly enjoyed every second of this first season so i wanted to put together an episode that that really highlighted the the best of These interviews that we've been so privileged to get to have on this show. And there were so many that I had to make it a two-parter. So this week is part one, and next week will be part two. And this week, you're going to get to hear my best of clips from my talk with Carlos Rodriguez, who, if you guys remember, he is a pastor, a writer, a blogger, and an activist, and just an overall amazing human being. You're going to get to hear from my conversation with Micah Murray, who is a controversial blogger and speaker, and I loved his really outside-of-the-box way of thinking. And then William Paul Young, which I know is an episode that so many of you guys reached out to me about because it just spoke volumes to all of us, the amazing bits of wisdom that he shared. And so, I mean, this is great content. I am just... I was piecing it all together. And I was overwhelmed again with the amazing guests we've had on this show this season thus far. So super, super thankful for every single one of you that have been on this journey with me. And super thankful for these amazing guests that we have gotten the privilege of having here on this show. So This is going to be a great episode, and I'm really, really glad that you jumped in on this one. So, before we dive into all of that, we have a new five star review that I'm going to share with you. This is from Scosh PDX, which is like a super cool handle. Love that handle. This is what they said. They said, I came across this podcast recently and have been energized by the conversations that Anna and her guests have. This is a very safe space to ask questions and to really consider topics that are certainly not able to be discussed in a lot of church environments, at least not the one I grew up in. It's so refreshing to hear a different perspective than the church slogans that have been taught and accepted for so long. Keep up the great work. Oh my goodness. Yes, yes and yes. And this review I think really sums up what this season has been. It has been a safe place not only to invite guests on the show to share different ways of thinking and offer different perspectives and like we're talking about today, reimagining the idea of God. But it's been a safe place for me. You know, for so long, I have had my own thoughts, my own questions, my own wonderings, my own wrestlings kind of privately in my journal and in my prayer closet to be truthful with you. And so having this space to just let all of that out of me And realize that I'm not alone has been so healing and so, um, it's really been life changing for me. And I think anybody who finds that they have community and they no longer feel alone in whatever space they felt isolated in, it's an empowering thing. And that's what this space has been for me and what I'm hoping it's creating for all of you. So, again, Thank you for that review, and thank you to all of you who continue to support this show. And on that note, we have a new Patreon supporter, and I am so tickled because this is someone that if you are in our Facebook group, you know this person, Ms. Val Slinginger, and oh my goodness, forgive me if I completely messed up the last name really sorry if I did. Val has been the mama bear of our Facebook group. And if you're in there, you know who Val is and you feel loved by her. And that's one of my absolute favorite things about her. She's our latest Patreon. She's supporting this podcast every month. And I could not be more grateful to have her in this circle of people who support this show. So Val, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And for any of you listening, if you want to find out more about how you can support this show, go to my website, justajesusfollower.com, and click on the button Patreon. And if you're interested in joining our Facebook group, again, go to the website and do justajesusfollower.com backslash podcast, backslash podcast group, and you can opt in our Facebook community that way. All of that being said... I can't wait to present to you some of the highlights from the best of the best of this first season. So here we go.
1: And I was just talking to a good friend of mine. His name is Douglas Campbell. He's a, he's a professor in Duke Divinity. He's like the master when you're talking about Paul and the Pauline letters, et cetera, et cetera. And we, we just had lunch together today. We're having this awesome conversation about kind of we're talking about how to reach millennials. Forget I mean, I'm a millennial. And forget about us. Generation Next, like those kids in Parkland, they're on a whole other level. These conversations that we're having about LGBTQ, about guns, they're already like, what? You're still talking about that? like Oh, I know.
0: I, I know. I know. I <laughs> know.
1: <laughs> they're so far beyond that that we're really... I mean, we are not setting them up um, to grow in a place of discipleship, of true community inside, you know, in the context of church. The church has a lot of work to do. And obviously, it's easy for us here to talk about it. But, uh, you know, I'm I'm, I'm encouraged that we're having the conversation. But we have to, like, literally set some new paradigms. Like Jesus said, new wine needs new wineskin. There's no way around it. And we got to work on those new wineskins, which at the end of the day is actually the first wineskin, which is Jesus himself.
0: Right. You know, you mentioned in that story of the woman caught in adultery, how Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially God saying, I don't condemn you. I think a lot of people who've been raised in the church, who've grown up inside of a faith environment, whatever structure you want to put them in, they have a hard time seeing that because here you have the Old Testament with a God who seemingly yeah. all he does is condemn. Mm-hmm. And then you have this new Testament picture, which is kind of a mixture of both. And then Jesus shows up and all he is, is non-condemning mm-hmm. except of course, towards the religious, but help us bridge that gap. Help, help the listeners bridge that gap. Cause I think that's a, a big hurdle for a lot of people.
1: Yeah. And I, and I understand. Um, so I have this personal kind of check in my heart and this helps me a little bit. I'm like, if I want the God of the old Testament for the people I don't like, but then I want the God of the new Testament for me and the people that I like, then I'm missing God altogether. I'm just missing. Oh my gosh, I love that. I love that. <laughs> cause it's funny that, cause we talk about the God of the old Testament, but it's usually in the context of other people. It's usually in the context of those sinners. X, Y, or said, um, right. But what what, you know, for us is Jesus and Sundays I'll get, I'll repent and the blood covers me, etc. etc. Um, we know for a fact, and Jesus said it himself, Scripture points to me. So we have to get better at knowing Jesus. So I'm, I'm, I've am I'm, been here in Raleigh, North Carolina for nine years. I'm leaving um, to move back to Puerto Rico just short of 10 years of living here. And I've been so surprised at the fact that people in a really bizarre way know the Old Testament more than the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Like they can quote scripture from Exodus and Leviticus more than they can quote the Sermon of the Mount. And of course, scripture is scripture and it's all an invitation to him. But really the central figure is Christ. The whole point of Exodus, the whole point of the whole point of Leviticus is to show us that we need a savior. It's to show us that we need Jesus. Um, right. If you've had bacon and shrimp, you're done. Like you're not good, right? <laughs> you need somebody to come and rescue you. And that's the whole point is to, It's to show us him, our need of him. And then he comes. And again, it's not like he comes to show off how amazing he is, how terrible we are. He comes to serve us, to die for us, to like touch the man with leprosy, to save the woman who was about to be stoned. He doesn't just come to tell us we're terrible and he's great. He comes to tell us that he loves us, that he welcomes us, that he believes in us, which is such a bizarre concept. Not just that he loves us, but that he believes in us. So. Mm. We have to, we, we almost have to be intentional about focusing on Christ again. Um, I'm not saying you stop reading the Old Testament, but man, get really used to the red letters. Get really in tune with the Sermon on the Mount. Get really entrenched in that story of crucifixion and resurrection. Because if, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, um, you know, we're Jesus followers. Of course, we believe in Scripture and we, we read Scripture and we love Scripture, but it's not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and we, we got to right. focus on the Trinity. And if our eyes are there, then obviously Scripture is the guy that keeps us set on the author and perfecter of our faith, which is Jesus himself.
0: Right. And, you know, one thing that has helped me tremendously in my own workings out of the Old Testament, because I was born and raised on that stuff. So okay. I was just had the fear of all of it okay. <laughs> growing up. And I... I started to realize that in the Old Testament, it's really documenting how people viewed God. That's right. You know, and then we see the New Testament. They're still wrestling this out. And then Jesus comes and he's like, hey. This is
1: God. This is God. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So all that stuff you thought was me, yeah. No, no, no. This is what I'm like. And that that brought such relief to me because it showed – the humanity right. of the scripture, that we still do that. We still want to peg God for a lot of stuff God has nothing to do with and a lot of shame and guilt that God never wanted on us in the first place.
1: That's right. That's right. That's so good. Um, my friend, my friend, Brian son, I'm calling all these famous people, my friend, just so, you know, it makes me feel better. <laughs> my good friend, Brian son says, um, <laughs> Jesus is what God has to say. And I've, and I've always added to that. Jesus is what God is still saying.
0: Oh, I love that.
1: That, That's, he is the verb. He is the word. Um, he is the expression. He is, he is the presentation of the invisible God. We, he is visible now. We've seen him. And Jesus said about himself, I only do what I see my father doing. So Jesus saving that woman from being stoned to death is the father saving that woman from... If Jesus touched a, a man with leprosy, that's that's because he saw the father touching that man with leprosy. So he's fully representing who God is. And every version of God that doesn't look exactly like Jesus, we have to come to terms and say, this is not God. If it right. doesn't look exactly like Jesus, one billion percent, it's not God. And if Christians, who again, Christians, followers of Christ, can just start from that point, then we could, you know, we could move forward in so many ways and so many conversations about who we include or not, about who we welcome or not, about who we sit at the table or not. This is what God looks like. And he looks exactly like Christ. And I mean, that's, that's a beautiful invitation right there.
2: Christianity is very broad, and there's many people around the world when I say that in this conversation, I mean like American fundamentalism from nineteen eighty to the present because that's what I experienced right um, we we've done so much, and I think that we f- have focused we've picked a few issues, and we've said these are the sins mm-hmm. and the sins that that my churches chose to focus on was basically abortion and premarital sex. And that was it. Like like those were the two those were the issues. Like don't do that.
0: Those are the biggies. Yeah.
2: And uh, meanwhile the church in America has been complicit in genocide and in slavery And in murder and in oppression. And if you look back through the history of America and look at how conservative biblical doctrine was used to justify the slave trade and look at how conservative biblical doctrine was used to justify the slaughter of indigenous nations. And look at how conservative Christian doctrine was used to justify segregation.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. And we look at these things and, and now it's easy to look back and be like, well, those people weren't real Christians. Like clearly no real Christian would ever twist the Bible to support slavery or no real Christian would ever say that it was God's will for us to slaughter men, women, and children of indigenous nations. But when you read the writings of the people who supported these positions, the way that they read and interpret the Bible is the same way that evangelicals do. It was the same language. It was the Bible clearly says And as much as it pains us to do this, if we want to be faithful to God, we have to hold this position. And the same kind of language that the church in America uses now to discriminate against LGBT people and to discriminate against the Muslim community and to discriminate against um, refugee communities, like, it's all the same language. Mm. And... We've washed that blood off our hands by just saying, oh, if it was us now, we wouldn't do the same thing because it's so obvious in hindsight. But I do believe that we are doing the same thing and that it is going to be obvious in hindsight in a generation or two generations that they're going to look back and say, how did they think that that was an okay thing to do while still following the Bible?
0: Right. Well, and you, you mentioned history, you know, we tend to forget that this history that you're talking about is less than 500 years ago. I mean, this, this history is, you know, it is not far no. behind us at all.
2: Yeah. It's, it's super recent. Like, I mean, there's this quote from um, Bob Jones university, right. Which was uh, when I was in, in high school this was where all the kids that I went to school or that I went to church with wanted to go to college. Like it was very, very influential was Bob Jones University. Yeah. And as recently as the 80s, they had a policy against, um, against interracial dating. And this, okay. is the, this was their quote to support it. They said, based on the understanding of the Bible, that forbade interracial dating and marriage among its students, in order to make that policy easier to enforce, the university did not admit blacks. We hold the doctrine that interracial marriage is contrary to principles set forth in God's word. Our right to be bible believing is the issue. This is religious freedom in a nutshell mm. as
0: nineteen
2: eighty three
0: Well, and you know, in the nineties, they were not allowing boys and girls to walk on the same side of the sidewalk either because of this fear of them having sex, I suppose. I don't know what the fear was, but they have definitely a track record of behavior like that.
2: Yeah. And it's easy to look at them and say, well, they, they are so fringe. They're so weird. But you look at this, this sentence, we hold the doctrine that interracial marriage is contrary to the principles set forth in God's word. And you swap out interracial for gay marriage, and you have the dominant position of most evangelicals in America today.
0: You do. And the same can be said of how women were treated, how women couldn't speak in church, how women couldn't lead. The same can be true of people who get divorced or commit adultery. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And one thing that continues to stand out to me, just like you said, is that it's the same argument. Over and over again. Yes. And I think, I think you brilliantly threaded that all together for, for honestly, a lot of people don't, don't sit and think about things that happened 200 years ago. And I can't blame them for that unless you enjoy history. (laughs) That's not something you're going to do, but it's important to look behind us. Um, One of my favorite quotes says the best way to predict the future is to look at the past and our past is telling us our narrative right now, and it's happening.
3: So there is a lot of these piled-up uh, beliefs that, that that judgment is against us, or a judgment is a declaration of our humanity. You know that that God reveals that He's really actually pissed off. Yep, right, and 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 yes. He may love you because he sort of has to because that's how he's been couched but he he has a very low view of humanity and Mm -hmm. and we were told that we were told that that God was disappointed in us that God had a low view of humanity that we were worthless and depraved God loved us not because of who we are but because of who he is I mean haven't you heard that
0: oh yes yes
3: and it's and it's like well no you're you're a piece of crap but you know, God is so great and so good that he loves pieces of crap, but it doesn't change the fact that you're a piece of crap. In fact, you're always going to be a piece of crap. So Jesus is going to wrap you up in his righteousness. And so that God, the father somehow gives you a pass because when he looks at you, he doesn't see the piece of crap you are. He sees Jesus. And it's like, what kind of nonsense is this? And, and how would that ever fit into a relational reality? And, uh, So there's so many of the things that we grew up with and held dear that are being challenged. And they get, here's crazy, they get challenged by things like lyrics of a song or by encounters with children or by having a child or having a grandchild. You know, I have a a friend that said um, that, you know, he said, here's the sad thing, that I was able to disassociate my theology from my own children. That is, somehow in the warpness of the theology, I was still able to send my children to to eternal conscious torment. But he said, I couldn't do it with my grandchildren. Oh,
0: that's interesting.
3: So interesting. That that means that by the time that he had grandchildren, he had softened up as a human being to the point where he could no longer consign, you know, by some elected will of God, a child to the uh, fires of eternal conscious torment and uh and, and 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 you need to understand, I believe in judgment, but I think it's always for us. I think it's never against us and I think it's the same fury that wants me to destroy any lie that hurts anybody that I love if if I, if I have a daughter who begins to believe that she is unworthy and that she is damaged goods or whatever the lie is, you know i I want the the authority to be a flaming fire, a fury, and and destroy that which hurts the one I love. But it's not because they've disappointed me or because they haven't lived up to my expectations. It's because I love them. And and I think that kind of fury originates with God, that this is not a God who will stand idly by, well, anything that is not of love's kind remains in me. and mm. And that is a love that is for me. So... Um, I, in fact, I think it was uh, MacDonald that says, if you trust the goodness of God, you will run to this God with your arms wide open and you will say, come, please judge me to the core and burn out of me everything that keeps me from being fully human and fully alive.
0: Well, and if you look at judgment, like you just said, from a lens of a loving action rather than a punishing action, of course you would run to that. Yes. Because love is the most amazing, life-changing, transforming force on earth.
3: Yeah, I was uh, I, sp- I was on a ride with Richard Rohr. I did a conference with him and Cynthia Bougeau on the Trinity last last year, and and we we were driving along in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and and Richard says, you know, this might be a really strange thing to hear a uh, a, a priest, a monk who is who has dedicated his life to celibacy. Um, you know, Kansas city farm boy who didn't know what, what he would end up in the middle of. And, uh, he said, but after all these years, after all the people that I've talked to and counseled with, he says, I'm, I've come to the understanding that the single greatest gift that God has ever given humanity is marriage mm. because you can't hide. I mean, you can sure try, but, you know, there's a thing about staying isolated that keeps us inside of our paradigms. It's when we're pushed into the, into the fires of actual relationship. You know, frankly, this is why porn is so attractive because it's not, it's not about an actual relationship. It's just the imagination of one. And, uh, and it's without the risks of a real one because the risks of a real relationship expose us. And, um, and therefore he's saying, you know, marriage is so exposing because your crap is going to come to the surface. You know, all the things that are broken in you, the ways that you think about yourself, how you treat other people, you're now going to be in close proximity inside of a relationship and it, it will become a fire within itself. And, mm. um, and, and I, I love that. I, I mean, I, I've said, you know, marriage would be a lot easier without another person involved. And,
0: uh, <laughs> boy, that's true. <laughs>
3: yeah. But, but we wouldn't change apart from relationship. That's, right. that's why I said it's the crucible of transformation. You know, it's it, relationships as difficult and as uncontrollable and mysterious as they are. We're made in the image of a God who's never been alone, a God who is fundamentally relational by nature. And so is it any wonder that relationship is so at the core of both the way we're broken and the way we're healed?
0: Oh, I love that. And I so want to dig into that. But before I do, I want to go back to something that you said when you were talking about judgment, because I think this is where a lot of people get stuck and can't move into that relational piece that you're talking about. Tell us, because I've heard you talk about this before, tell us about how even that word judgment is used inside of scripture.
3: Ah, so there's a whole bunch of different Greek words for it, but the one we're most common uh, that, that we know of mostly is when it, call, it talks about the day of judgment, or there's appointed for a person a, a time to die, and after that, the judgment. Um, that, that word in the Greek is krisis, uh, where we get the English word crisis from. So it's, it's relating judgment to a crisis that you're going to be face to face with love and you're going to know that he knows that you know that he knows. Mm. And, uh, and it's going to uh, enact a crisis. I don't think that death is our salvation. That is that, that death is the transformative event. I think that, that Jesus is the transformative event. And uh, uh, also the way judgment is used without exception is from a family of restoration words. If if you don't have judgment with the intention to restore and redeem, all you have is vengeance or something punitive and retributive. There is mm. there's one word in the Greek that is punitive and retributive, but it's never used of God. It's only used of how human beings who are broken relate to each other. And, um, and so, you know, the... The concept of judgment and and this of course affects the whole conversation about hell and 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 all of that but to to me you know if you want to hold on to your darkness and potentially you could do that forever and ever um, that tension seems to be very much held in scripture but if you want to hold on to it you're still not going to get away from The love of God, you know, death can't separate you. Life can't separate you. Nothing in the future can separate you and no created thing can separate you. So you're not going to get away from the love of God. And if you want to hold on to your darkness and be in the presence, the eternal presence of the love of God, doing that will be hell to you. And if you want to let it go, that will be heaven to you. So for me, the fire of the, the God is a consuming fire that fire is the love of God intending to destroy that which is within us that is not of love's kind that hurts us.
0: Oh, that's so good. And I and I can even hear, this is probably my upbringing coming up, and what I imagine maybe some listeners may be thinking is, well, yeah, that, that's called repentance. That, that's where that's where we have to tell people that if they don't change, they're, they're going to to not experience that. And, and so then you get that evangelical push that, that instinctively drives a lot of people towards the hell versus heaven conversation. Um, when you look at Scripture, and again, I've heard you mention this in other um, interviews you've done and other talks you've done, it's so interesting how Jesus discusses hell yeah. and how even you know hell is used throughout scripture. Can you dive into that a little bit? Sure,
3: sure. And, and let me recommend Brad Jerzak's book. It's called Her, yes. Her Gates Will Never Be Shut. And it's uh, about the best book out there right now. And it's very so objective. It looks throughout history. But one of Brad's arguments um, about this whole conversation is he's done some work, and so have a lot of other scholars, on how Jesus relates to the term Gehenna. Now, it used to be in our English translations that anything that had to do with Sheol or Hades or Gehenna, they were just called hell, even though Sheol and Hades are both referring to the place of the dead rather than to any kind of fiery um, uh, lake of fire or anything else. Uh, But lately, the translations have started to become a a little bit more clear about that. So they're using... The term hell in reference to Gehenna. Now, Jeremiah was the first prophet who really started, he's the one that talked about the lake of fire. He's the one that talked about um, fire as the restorative purging of God's uh, love and, um, and the fiery fury of justice, which is just love. And, um, and, and, there was there were two theories or two main streams of thought. Uh, there was the Jeremiah tradition, and Jeremiah was absolutely opposed to you know uh, there was a um, a big uh, worship center in Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, which is just outside of Jerusalem, in which the prophets, uh, I think it was Marduk, um, they would uh, they would light light these altars and and become so hot, then they would sacrifice babies. Uh, and it infuriated Jeremiah. And so he took mm. uh, a whole bunch of soldiers and they went in and burned the Valley of Hinnom. That became the Lake of Fire. But the, the whole point that Jeremiah makes is restoration. There is never a usage nice. where Jeremiah isn't about restoration, that the point of burning it is to restore. Now, by the time Jesus uh, comes onto the scene. There is this stream of thought regarding, uh, the fiery fury of God's judgment from Jeremiah, but there was the Pharisaical one, which is much more like our eternal conscious torment, even, but even the Pharisees didn't believe it was eternal. They just believed that, you know, you were, you were tortured until you'd paid for, uh, equivalent to the sins that you'd committed. And then, and then you were extinguished. And, um, so uh here's the deal the question is so in which tradition is Jesus and Brad makes this point very clearly that there is not one time that Jesus mentions gehenna not once where he doesn't quote jeremiah he wants right. he wants to be seen clearly that he is in the tradition of jeremiah which means he's in the tradition of restoration and 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 let me say this too if hell was such a huge issue um in the mind, the way that we think of it as eternal conscious torment, that once you die, you know, it's kind of like game over. Um, if that was true, you'd think it would be even mentioned in any of the early sermons of the early church, the book of Acts, and you won't find mm-hmm. it, you won't find it mentioned nope. mentioned one time. And um, and so, you know, uh, there's a entirely different paradigm. And again, Brad's book her gates will never be shut, does does a superb job of looking at this whole conversation and saying, you know what, there were a lot of different viewpoints over the centuries that were not considered to be heretical um, that are are different than the, the eternal conscious torment model. The eternal conscious torment model has really significant problems. Um, for a lot of different things, like how do you deal with the unborn baby? How do you deal with the mentally ill? You know, for a lot of us in the evangel- modern evangelical uh, world, we didn't grow up with a um, theology that was big enough for mental illness or big enough for, you know, we had to come up with imagined solutions like the age of accountability and stuff like that. That has no grounding within Scripture at all, but it it, it allied or a laid hour sense of god just he just can't be so mean as to send a, a newborn baby or an unborn baby to eternal conscious torment so we had to find a way to to try to get around that but that also creates a whole 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 new set of problems like do do unborn babies get a free pass you know if they do why did god let me be born do mentally ill get a free pass you know, do those in foreign countries who've never heard the gospel get judged by a different set of parameters than we do, and I'm speaking inside the evangelical model
0: right and, right
3: uh, and if they do, why sh- why are we spreading the gospel? you know because it seems that as soon as we do, they're going to be judged by a stricter criteria than if we don't tell them at all i mean there's there's all these inconsistencies and difficulties, and the early church. They'd have gone like, "What are you talking about? You know, <laughs> this is this is not a God who's capricious like this. This is a God who included you in Christ, and when Jesus died, you all died, and when He rose, you all rose, Corinthians. Mm. You know, and, yes. and He reconciled the cosmos to Himself, not counting their sins against them. And um, so, what does this mean? That means you were included." in the finished work of Jesus. And it is a finished work. And, and now it's a question of relationship, you know, like, do you, do you want to deal with your crap or not? Do you want to be in a face-to-face relationship or do you want your own stuff? And, um, and so it's a relational conversation. That's, that's us working out the salvation that was accomplished in Jesus.
0: Hey there. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. You can find my blog and links to my Instagram and Facebook account on my website at justajesusfollower.com. I hope you join us next week for another raw, honest conversation. In the meantime, go in peace and know that you are enough.